Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. For this, the 500th edition of The Exchange, it's our distinct pleasure to host an interview with the English producer and musician Square Pusher. The work of Tom Jenkinson is some of the most jaw-dropping and future-facing music to emerge since the early 90s. Although he's generally thought of alongside other key acts from the Warp stable like Aphex Twin and Orteca, Jenkinson's musical horizons are particularly all-encompassing. Few artists have managed to so convincingly create a dialogue, or an argument as Jenkinson puts it, between live instruments and electronic sound. It's a conversation he carries out at an insatiable rate, having released something like 14 LPs since 1996, all the while challenging himself and his audience by exploring new compositional approaches. RA contributor Holly Dicker spoke to Jenkinson on the eve of the release of his latest album, Be Up A Hello, tracing key points in his artistic development from his earliest musical experiences all the way up to the present day. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The exchange with Square Pusher is up next. Tom, you're about to release your 14th record, Big Up A Hello. Yes, it's, it's Be Up A Hello, but yeah, more or less the same thing. What did I just, oh, Be Up A Hello. Yeah, actually I prefer Big Up. Oh yeah? That's a nice alternative. So Sweet. yeah, if I get to kind of remaster it one day. <laughs> That's the 15th album then. Christ, yeah. Yeah, I'll get there. Okay, um, but according to the bio that I've read, the origins of this kind of traces back to an accident in Norway mm. uh, you slipped on some ice and broke your arm that's correct but yeah. I, I'm wondering what were you doing working in Norway on on some slippery ice well yeah I was actually walking rather than working at that point when I slipped but but I was out there with my partner who was doing an artist in residency program out in uh, Norway on an island called Trana uh, out in the Norwegian Sea which is a pretty fascinating place and I was just tagging along but I'd taken a couple of bits and bobs to do some work and things, as well as just kind of mooch about. And uh, just out for a walk one day with the wrong footwear, basically. Went flying on some ice, landed on my left wrist and smashed it. It was pretty devastating because um, I got it looked at and uh, happened to crack a bone that has a nerve running through it. And that can lead to like loss of feeling in your fingers, possibly need surgery, this kind of stuff. And as a guitar player, that's pretty frightening. You know, it, it looked like there was some sort of conceivable chance that I was actually going to be kind of hampered or perhaps even unable to play. So it did cause me to have a stop and a think and a moment of reflection, given that I was also, I guess, in a state of distress, really, because of, of the, the concern that this injury provoked. I was looking for sort of a way to ameliorate the kind of sense of uh difficulty so i thought i'm just gonna 
go for something nice and comfortable in terms of recording. I'm just going to go back to all my old stuff, my old uh, analog kit, and just have some fun with it, you know, and just start again. Try to treat it like a like a new start. I've, I have this craving anyway for turning over a new leaf, like a, a kind of year zero. Of course, at forty four, you know, I've been re- making records more than half my life, so that's in the end not really actually even vaguely conceivable but still with a bit of um of an effort of will and some imagination you can get some way there so that's what i wanted to do um so i just set it all up all the old analog stuff and just uh set up this rule i would just make a track a day so one track every you know 24 hour period so at the end of the day i would just record whatever i'd done and the next day i'd move on so it was this very very kind of fast-moving and light-hearted, flippant approach to composing and recording. And this is um, a process that you've done before, or is this like a new process Yeah, too? I mean, it will, it will often sort of come along in, in lulls, you know, after big tours or, you know, some other kind of much more intense phase of recording, you know, something that was perhaps, you know, very technically or psychologically demanding, you know. It's this kind of moment i crave you know like a little holiday if you like a little break but it's still doing you know the thing that i love but but in a in a much less programmatic and um focused and 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 frankly you know in a a way that doesn't really at the time of doing it at least it feels like it has no real relation to my kind of career in the sense of being a public figure and and putting work into the uh, public domain so Frankly, it was just a time to mess about. And it was great. You know, I mean, I was still faced with this dire stress of like, well, am I ever going to be able to play again? But, you know, it was a good way of distracting myself for the time being. Keeping the fear at bay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we all find different ways to do that, right? So what were you doing then? So before the accident, what kind of work train were you on? It's very sort of guitar focused. That's, I think, probably why it was, you know, the stress was so... Uh, intense you know because it completely destroyed it i was writing some music for the london symphonietta actually it was a it was a a violin and piano duet and then um also some music for a quartet too um and then i was um as part of the concert i was also going to be playing and it just threw the whole thing out it was dreadful really because i was really looking forward to it and i still i got about halfway through it and and uh of course one day it'll be happening again yeah Yeah, it's not like Oh, no. Forgotten forever. Oh no! Well, who knows? I mean, you know, things. Life can be chaotic, but I hope to get back to it. Yeah. Okay. So, speaking of guitar, mm. maybe take us back to aged ten. Was it when you bought your first guitar? Mm. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So you know, I mean, that was the year zero, and uh, I couldn't have been happier. You know, this sort of um, object was so fascinating for me. I mean, it was, wasn't was uh, long before that that I'd heard the music of Jimi Hendrix, but as an avid listener of music from basically as far back as I can remember, um, guitars were a big feature of, uh, of the music that I heard, and I, I became fascinated by them and just, just had to know how it worked. So um, got a classical, you know, as one does perhaps, you know, a 15-quid thing. Um, that was enough to get me hooked. And then I got a bass that November, I believe it was 1986. And um, off I went. Why the bass guitar, though? 
I just had this fascination with what was happening in the background, like the kind of the foundation, if you like. And it was also a mystique thing. It's like, okay, there's the guy at the front and he's making all the noise and everyone's looking at him and that's cool. But there's also this other guy at the back and he's kind of like, what's he doing? And I had this sense of, like, that th there was something kind of mysterious about it. Also quite kind of, as I say, foundational. Foundational about the instrument. And because it was mysterious, I, I felt that there was a greater potential for exploration. I mean, I don't know if I portrayed it to myself like that when I was a kid, but it, was ju it just felt like a blank canvas. It's like, what's that thing? It's the instrument no one really kind of knows or really cares about. So, okay, let's play that one and see where it goes. See what I can come up with. Yeah, I mean, looking at it in a sort of technical sense, you know, bass, it's so critical for how we hear harmony. The bass note you can have, you know, if you have like say an E major and then you, but you drop an A underneath it, then it completely changes and you don't hear it as E major anymore. You'll hear it as a, as a, a variety of A chord, you know, and the bass note will, will tell your ears, you know, that's the, that's the root. And then you, your mind sem assembles the rest of the notes according to that reference point. And, and, and I think cause it's the deep connection with rhythm that you can basically you can play the drums and melody at the same time with that instrument. It's the, it's kind of for me, the instrument that unites all these different areas that you might find in a con, you know, sort of whatever conventional ensemble, like there's, there's the, there's the melody that you kind of up, up front and that you hear and that you remember. And there's the rhythm that drives it along and the bass that's kind of harmonic foundation. But bass is the thing that for me links all those together. And then you also learned to play the drums, right? At this very early age, or well, I used to mess about on the drums at school. Okay. Frankly, that was, was you know that's my background in drumming. I just messed about whenever the, you know at rehearsals when I was in bands. You know, whether whenever the drummer left the room to have a cigarette or whatever, I just kind of like get on the drum kit and just blast away until he came back, which is probably quite annoying. For <laughs> <laughs> First one of those things. I was fifteen. What you can do? Be annoying, I guess. Exactly. That's the point, right? <laughs> You're a teenager, you're kind of obsessed with music, fascinated by music. Where do you think this obsession to kind of play and make music came from? As I say, that the, my fascination with music goes right back to, the, to my earliest memories. So I think when you have a, a fascination, an attraction towards something that dates from that age where your, your mentality is not really fully formed it's it's kind of hard to know really what the reasons are i think i could point something obvious out like i couldn't i couldn't ever really get enough of how it would take me on a sort of emotional trip you know even just a three minute throwaway pop song could be like a, a vision and a journey through another through another world and I think music's power to, to transform the moment is probably the, the root of the fascination and that it can take us through any number of different emotions in a, in a short space of time. But as I believe Schopenhauer commented to this some, somewhere towards this effect, that it takes you through that range of emotions, but without the uh, painful stimuli that in the normal run of human life would be required to produce them. So it's, it's a way of having a rich emotional life without having an intensely stressful one. Well, 
and then you become an electronic music and then, musician. And then you have a career in the music industry and then, <laughs> that and then, all goes to then hell. your life is stressed from start to finish. So, yeah, there you go. I'm curious why you decided to study art instead of music mm. then. Mm. It, well, it is an interesting one. I basically have not had any formal music tuition um, aside from uh, year one to three at secondary school. Uh, you know, that because it was a, a compulsory subject. I, I didn't get on well whatsoever with the uh, with the music department at school. I mean, I, we, we more or less continually antagonised each other because um, there was a there was a if you like a kind of group of musicians at school who were, who were I must po- point out at this point uh, that although not sure how many people would connect him with my work, but um, I went to school with a uh, guitar player, Guthrie Govan, who is, I mean, absolutely one of the world's leading guitar players, an absolutely extraordinarily good musician. And But I grew up watching him play, and that set the standard for me, which is about as high as it gets. I mean, you know, if you just said to him, right, play the guitar solo out of 1984 by Van Halen, and you just play a note for note. You might not want to have heard it, but you could still play it. Or anything else you care to mention. And the guy plays with such extraordinary conviction um, that that set basically the highest standard possible for me from day one. It was just, you know, demanding, but there you are. But anyway, he was part of this little gang of, of rebels, musical rebels, and we sort of, you know, would try to get rehearsal time on the stage at school and the, the music department would sometimes kind of grumblingly permit it and teachers would wander past, wander past kind of frowning and go, what are you making this hideous racket for? What is the point of this horrible music that you're doing? You know, and of course, I'm sure some of it was horrible, but what are you going to do? You're learning, you know, it starts out that way and maybe it continues to be horrible. I mean, I hope it does. In ways, I hope my music's still horrible here and there. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, amongst the other things, whatever they are. But anyway, so, yeah, it was this battle. It was a, started out as a battle and it, in, in this quite funny, you know, extremely sort of, I suppose, harmless context of school. But, you know, it set me out immediately with this kind of sense of being against the authorities. I remember, like, surprising them. Like, they, they do try and sort of, you know, set challenges as far as music lessons are saying, play a G on a piano, and then he'd play another note. And he'd say to the audience... Uh, the assembled, you know, the class, he'd say, well, what was the second note? And I'd, he'd ask the music boffins, none of them would know, and I'd say it was an E-flat. And so they kind of were suspicious of me, like, how does this, what's going on with this child? You know, makes this horrible music, but somehow he's kind of got this peculiar skill of knowing the wiring out of the board, you know, he understands, like, harmony, like, already. And um, I asked if I could do A-level music at that point. Um, they told me, no, you wouldn't be capable what yeah i walked off and i was it was a it was a shock now he's laughing well i don't know i mean i i actually would love to see him and say you know how it turned out it turned out all right it's not so you know it's still pretty horrible though so sorry about that yeah but yeah so you know it and it only added fuel to this sense of rage against the authorities you know in in the way that rage occurs when you're a teenage boy you know just like right well I'm going to fight back and I'll continue fighting until, until I win. But, um, as, you know, in that context, it was, it was just, I was a black sheep and that was that. 
so consequently, academic study of music was just a no-no. It just was, was ended in that very moment when he told me I couldn't do it. Art was, I just chose it as a fourth A level and then, then it turned out to be a load of fun. And I took it foundation year as a, as a sort of experiment and just had such a wonderful time because I actually started making, apart from anything else, I tried, I was trying to find at that point ways to make visual art and sound go together. You know, in quite an elemental way. I mean, this is going back to like early 90s still. So I was doing slideshows and things, you know, this really granddad sort of format. Amazing. Yeah, I know. I mean, I mean it's really like so clunky and, and, and primitive. And it's got this kind of like reference of really tedious kind of family gatherings as some sort of taking you through the holiday snaps like one by one. And I tried to make that work. And in, I guess in ways, you know, I had some success. And it was a fantastic year and it led me to want to pursue it. You know, so I went to Chelsea. Very prestigious art college. Um, kind of disappointing though. I mean, I didn't, yeah, that year was, 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 a, was a bit of a shock because it just suddenly was this sort of, again, it was another hostile atmosphere, you know, and I, I felt at odds with the teachers. Quite often would argue with them. I don't know if they really saw any merit you know in my work and trying to combine sound sound with picture and I was just always made well you must read John Cage you must read John Cage because he's the person who understands you know this kind of like a you know the the fine artists composer and actually I think John Cage is absolutely fantastic a really fascinating really fascinating person so yeah they did me a favor here and there you say begrudgingly once <laughs> that just that one though that was it that's where it stopped. Yeah. Okay, so you, so you only did one year at Chelsea Art College? Year and a term, yeah, because I got the contract from Warp. Uh, the contract offer came through in the first term of the second year. Um, I mean, it was it was approaching Christmas time, so, yeah, um, getting on, you know, for this time of year, really. And and I remember just looking at this sheet of paper that, that was a summary of an offer, and it was someone offering to give me money to make music, you know, and I... I it was kind of hard. I couldn't really believe it. I thought, well, I'll, what I'll do is I'll I'll go with it. Um, I'll defer the course at Chelsea for a year, which is what I did. I'll make them a record. It will do nothing. I'll get dropped and I'll go back to Chelsea <laughs> and I'll go on arguing with my tutors, you know, and that'll be what happens and who cares, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And that didn't happen? Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently not. I don't know if the Chase, Chelsea has still got the place open for me. <laughs> Chelsea, if you're listening to this. Yeah, exactly. Tom wants guys, to come back. Come on, you know, one day. Make slideshows. Let's, let's do it, yeah. Okay, well, um, let's go back a little bit. Um, so this is what, this must be after your Reflex record. Or? This, the, so, yeah, so no, the there's a little bit more detail in there to, to cover because... Um, before the one of the reasons why the warp offer came in is because i'd met Aphex uh, a couple of months back at a show um in finsbury park in fact you know the, the story which obviously richard embellished somewhat on the back of um female things is broadly true like uh, that's where we we met at the george roby pub where uh, there was a monthly experimental electronic music night and it was the proper kind of old school london pub gig you know with a with a bar on one part of the side, on one, one side, and then a big blacked out room, you know, with a knackered 
16 channel mixer and a kind of floor standing PA and, and, you know, fill it for with a hundred people and till six in the morning. And it was totally amazing. Um, in a very rough and ready way, but Richard used to live around the corner from that. Um, and just chanced on being there when I was doing my first show up there. And, um, we had a chat afterwards and then the long and short of that was, uh, feed me with things. And in the meantime, warp got wind of it partly through Richard checking out and also checking out a couple of my early 12s and, and uh, which led to the offer. Okay, so just to add a bit of colour to this gig, I've actually, for those listening who haven't read the sleeve notes, I'm going to read a little sample. <clears throat> he made the sound of ambulances turn into slide trombones and the sound of a secretary filing her nails into a 24-piece string section. When my partner Grant Wilson Claridge saw Tom spasmodically twitching in order to play a funky bass line in time with a 347 BPM drum and bass track, he thought he should either be committed or recorded. Fortunately, he chose the latter. Bless him. <laughs> so this was in 1992? 1995. 95. That's 95, yeah. So, so um, winter 95, all that happened. And then the, the album was out in the spring. 96. But I want to ask about this first 1992 gig where you just mm. jumped up with your bass guitar and played with, is it DJ Hardy Finn? Oh, Hardy, yeah. Well, this, so this is, um, this is the stuff that me and my mates were doing when we were all at school still. So there was a couple of venues in Chelmsford. One was called the Chelmsford City Football Club. And then uh, there's also a YMCA, both total dens of iniquity, uh, loads of fun. And we would put on nights... Uh, once in a while at um, both these places. And, um, you know, they tended just to be a bit of a free-for-all, like people DJing, general kind of party, kind of atmos, uh, fairly eclectic approach to the music. Um, but, you know, specifically my friend Hardy was as real, like an absolute sort of savant when it com came to uh, dance music of the day, you know, like sort of roomfuls of... Detroit, Chicago, and New York rarities. And I mean, it's through him that I came to learn about the music of uh, Derek May, which is like st still one of my absolute favorite, still one of my favorite musicians. And, uh, but yeah, so we just put on parties and play records. And I would sometimes, you know, there were sometimes events where you'd like ch chop up break beats and things. And I would, I would jam bass lines on the top. It was just, just a massive load of fun, basically. And, and quite kind of, you know just making it up as we went along really but 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 stacks of fun so and that that but it was quite foundational in terms of my outlook on um electronic music and trying to trying to expand the the range i suppose by by bringing in electronic uh, sorry by bringing in um conventional instruments you know i started with the bass because that's what i had to hand but i was quite quickly uh then bringing in um other acoustic instruments and and, and so on and um which which you know ultimately led you know in the early days to you know records like hard normal daddy and music is right one note where in 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 different ways i'm trying trying to explore and blur the boundaries between uh electronic sequence delivery of uh, musical material and performance mm -hmm. and and actually like trying to blur those two and, and trying to make one sound like the other and vice versa and i think if if there is a thread through anything, that's probably it. This kind of dialogue, although I think you've used the word argument yeah, quite a bit between a word, this yeah. uh, kind of electronic instrumentation versus mach machine processing. And so on that point, um, I want to take 
ask you about sort of the first time when you kind of tried to combine playing bass with digital sound sources you described mm. it as being quite unpleasant in the beginning yeah yeah because i mean just taking the example of a of a conventional drum machine and when uh you play along to it there's absolutely no give in the tempo it's just absolutely rock steady at whatever tempo you set i mean of course if you get involved with it you can introduce subtlety with with some hard work you know you can begin to get it to approximate uh the ebb and flow that you might get from a drummer uh but you know majority of my experience at that point and, and in those early days was was playing bass with with other musicians you know so this lockstep timing um initially was a bit bit of a bind in terms of being a performer um but i in the end found a way to turn that to my advantage so rather than trying to be in you know dwell in this domain of of uh conventional motifs of 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 expression you know like sort of emphasis here slow down at the end you know big moments start at the next bar you know that the, the way that you might make music ebb and flow as a performer I actually thought I'm throwing all that away and I'm going to play like a machine and just just actually try and learn acid riffs instead of like Jaco Pistorius licks. You know, I just want to learn like DJ Pierre uh, Slam and like, you know, Box Energy, like tracks like that, that the intervals are so weird. Like on a, for, for a musician to go to play it, it's suddenly your hands are in this knot because it's not made you know with any reference to like a physical musical instrument it's 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 just what those guys what they plotted out in space you know just th this note and then that one and that one sounds wicked there and you're just not stuck you know with the, with the limits of your of your hands and which is one of the things that made it fascinating for me because it's got that same kind of like occupies that same sort of sonic territory but it's it's on the other hand it's just completely psychedelic you know, not stuck in all these kind of cliches, what really, you know, that, that, that musicians tend to play in. So uh, it was about finding my way from my left hand to get, you know, all the way around through those strange kind of intervals. And then for the right hand, just to make that machine-like attack and make it completely digital, you know, in time. And of course, you know, you can, you can only approximate it. I'm not a machine. But, um, and I, you know, who knows whether that's good for you or not. And whether it makes good music, I don't know. But it was it felt fun to explore it. And I believe, you know, that that what what is exciting about it is you can get somewhere towards that trance-like state and immersion in sound that you get through dance music. Like repetitive dance music is one of the fascinating things about it, is how you gradually can kind of sink or rise into this state of otherworldliness if you like you know like a, a lot an altered state of mind and you know as a performer that can happen too you know you get involved in that sort of and of course you know that 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 actually happens if you look across world music i mean there's any number of different uh, forms of music around the world that, that actually seem to be trying to get to that same place you know through repetition a kind of trance inducing style so i'm curious as to what your entry into this 
trance dance music realm was from playing in bands and being well just just um i remember hearing lfo uh the track lfo by lfo at a party 1990 i think and at that point i really didn't have much time for dance music and, and i think it was an article of faith amongst the musical rebels at my school that dance music was kind of fake um then it was just sort of throwaway commercial crap you know that's not doesn't have any kind of real value it's not nothing kind of really particularly good about it, it makes it worth checking out so i'd absorb that you know although not entirely because they're always at the back of mind yeah but what about like electro you know what about grandmaster flash you know that where you have these ele- you know electronic sounds with instruments and it's kind of mm. anyway and lfo really just showed me the the falsity of that that premise you know that electronic music's sort of lifeless commercial crap because it was suddenly this like luminous world of sound uh really super i mean it was i really remember it being super visual like a really striking uh visu- visual image as i was hearing it. it just sounded so neon green and glow in the dark and I just had to know more. And of course, you know, a lot of the other dance music I heard subsequently was like, yeah, it's actually just pretty far away. But I, I chanced upon LFO and just wanted to go in deeper. And as I say, this my, my friend at school, Hardy, was, was my, you know, way in really because he already knew so much about that world. So through him, I learned about Detroit music and Chicago, Acid House. And which is still, you know, they're still kind of major reference points for me. But were you also going out raving or was this more oh, yeah. as a sitting That's, at home listening to music? No, 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 no. I mean, it was, it was, it was very much tied up with, very much tied up with hearing this music in, in the proper context, i.e. really, really loud in a really dark room with flashing lights and smoke and no one knows what's happening. Cool. So where, where, where was this? Like, were you going illegal raving or? Well, it was clubs? just a mixture of things, whatever, whatever we could manage you know in 1991 wasn't exactly um overloaded with money so um it was whatever we could do locally and save up for a ticket for whatever nights in london i remember there was a big i think it was a world dance event summer of 91 in um great lees which is in essex that was a that was a big event where i saw couple of things which which really stayed with me including ragga twins yes yes they were so good yes. they just ran onto the stage as well it wasn't just like you know they're trying to be cool they just literally ran onto the stage the music started and it was just bliss it was such a powerful performance i remember i remember it so well to this day it was dynamite so so it was that and and um, odds and ends whatever you know hardcore breakbeat nights up in london that we that we got ourselves up to so it was all that yeah and did you have a little brief period of djing at this point yeah i mean i would i would do it yeah i I didn't really ever see myself as as that kind of performer really i didn't I i can do it it's just i feel a bit stuck when all i've got is records i mean it's fun for a party and it, there is something pretty satisfying about doing decent mixes and, and stringing an interesting set of tunes together. But it's it's just something that I'll do, like messing about, you know. And I did do it in those days, but 
really, you know, it's instruments. That's what it's about for me in terms of performance, you know. And then perhaps more being in the studio and making music, that's more your home. Well, yeah. Well, there is that. Yeah. I mean, there's that, which has been, you know, pretty, pretty key. I mean, you've basically been making an album every year for oh yeah the last over 20 years well so. yeah yeah there's there's been quite a few but i mean it's 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 true to say that there's plenty more stuff that hasn't reached the public too so there's a there's a stack of material i mean it's just i just record more or less obsessively it doesn't matter really what it is for me it's just about keeping going that and that, that does that sounds like a throwaway comment it's not, actually really not like for me continuity is everything because it's about keeping these ideas fluid in your head. It's about keeping all the information fresh so you can access it with a click of a finger. That's the key. You know, it's about keeping your information at your fingertips so you can just do whatever you want, so you can think the idea and you can make it. You know, that that's essential for me. If you're scrabbling about thinking, how do I do this? For me, you've already lost. You know, the enthusiasm levels are going to sort of just gradually start drifting away. So... Yeah, it's and for me, co you know, composing the studio, writing, recording the studio, even if it's just completely with it, exclusively with electronic instruments and sequences and so on, still it follows broadly the same kind of patterns that I will follow when I'm improvising, making something up on an instrument. So if I'm just making something up, like start to finish, off you go, make a piece of music, three minutes off you go, just just make it up. I love doing that. A lot of my practice would be that, you know, if I'm playing guitar, then I'll just sit there and make things up. And um, this is, for me, just composing in real time. That's all you're doing. And it, but it's a skill because, you, you, you know, you haven't got any time. You've got to just do everything more or less on the basis of instinct. If you hear the sound in your head, you need to be able to go, yeah, that's C flat. I need the E flat. Where's E flat? There it is. You play it. But that needs to happen split second mm -hmm. and um that's the way i work in the studio it's like i need i just i need to know like without thinking about it you know and the, and that that fluency is, is what it's about um and i've read somewhere that uh, you've said i feel like i'm rotting inside if i'm not learning so my question is mm. what are you learning about at the moment right now yeah right now well that was a grand statement for me wasn't it that know, one? Right. Yeah. or yeah. what were you learning about with this um latest this current album Current album. Well, as I say, I started out more or less trying to amuse myself. You know, I mean, it, I will quite happily be learning about things other than music. You know, it's not it's not the only thing I do. But in this instance, it's, it's uh, perhaps like learning how to try, take care of yourself, you know. Because whilst I don't think I did much of any musical merit in that immediate phase after I broke my arm, I can also say they helped me out. And got me kind of, you know, at least thinking sort of, you know, kind of relatively uh, straight up way, you know, like rather than in this kind of panicky frame of mind, you know, that, that ensued, you know, when I thought I might never be able to play the guitar again. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of therapeutic value. Um, Say so learning how to look after yourself. But it did lead into, you know, quite directly led into the phase that produced the music, which... I selected the pieces uh, that form this new album from. So, uh, yeah. And do you have like a general approach when you are making an album or is it really, it has depended and changed per each time? Yeah, it, it, 
it it really is a variety. There's no there's no set pattern. I can start with like a fairly broad uh, and quite strict kind of conceptual framework. You know, I'm not shy to say that if a concept album beckons, I'll make it. You know, has one ever beckoned? Yeah, yeah, they do. They do. I mean, the thing is, it sounds like a joke, but you know, they're they're they quite often have been. I mean. Something like, well, uh, say Go Plastic, the broad conceptual framework there was, was trying to find a way of making music that was catchy without using melodies, without using hooks, and without using repetition, or at least using as little repetition as I thought I could get away with. But still trying to make that melody, uh, uh, still trying to make that loop people, uh, you know, yeah. compelling you know, to bring people in, you know, like, I think it is a bit of a, a trap, you know, when you're wholeheartedly making experimental music, that it can kind of veer off into its own domain, where it really, the music sort of betrays this sense that the listener is no longer relevant. And at that point, I think I switch off. I don't, I think there's, there's a strong independence that I need from the audience. I need that because I can't thrive when I feel like I'm being dictated to. I need to just explore, you know, and the public's free to dis dislike it if they choose. They don't have to buy the record. They don't have to come to the gig. So I think it's fair. Yeah, I need that framework. But yeah, the, the concept conceptual boundaries can be quite strict, you know, and whilst in the end on Go Plastic, there are a couple of moments of what you might call more conventional melody, I think broadly it is, you know, fulfilled that kind of out, outlook. You made one of the, probably one of the catchiest tunes of, well, well my has, personal favourite. It's got a cheeky, yeah, it's got a cheeky opener, isn't it? Yeah, it it's does. It's got a cheeky opener. We're talking about Red Hot Car, if anyone <laughs> doesn't know already. Wasn't it all like top 40 or something? Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> Sounds unlikely. Classic. But, uh, uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Um, okay, so well, speaking of conceptual albums, um, was... I'm going to mispronounce this one as well. Don't worry. Budokan Mindphone. That's, that's bang on. Yes. Using Bolognese instruments, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so Gamelan instruments in there. I mean, used in quite a, I guess, a flippant way, or, or at least not trying to emulate Gamelan tradition. Um, it wasn't really made with any direct references to, to Balinese music. But, um, yeah. Didn't, didn't you just have the instruments and you just wanted to, to yeah. use them and well, incorporate I, them? Yeah, I, I happened to spend some time in Bali in um, the early part of the summer of 1998 and saw many performances of gamelan music, which was absolutely astonishing. Uh, really, really enriching experience. And then chanced upon a place where they were selling some instruments. So I had a few things shipped back. I mean, I didn't buy an orchestra, but I just bought you know, a few of the bits and pieces that, that appealed to me on the day. And and then, um, yeah, lo and behold, Budokan came around. So, it, yeah, and they crop up here and there. It's not like sort of banging away all through the record. Um, but, they're, yeah, they're here and there. You know, played in the way that seemed appropriate on that day. You know, like, as I said, I didn't study it. I didn't um, try to adopt the techniques that are used uh, within that music when it's performed but yeah I had some fun with it I guess now would be a good time to flip it and talk about software 
Yeah, feel free. Um, so you've been developing your own software now. Now it's more than 15 years. It's more like nearly 20, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that got its first sort of big outing on Damage and Fury's album. Yeah. Well, it that was the first record that I made exclusively using it. Yeah, I think the first piece um, that I released uh, was using any any of that stuff was in 2002, uh, which is called Kill Robot on uh, Do You Know Square Pushers. So that was that was um, a first outing of of my early experiments in that regard using yeah software that I'd actually worked up myself. But it wasn't until Damage and Furies that I'd uh, used it exclusively on the record. So um, what can I say? I mean, it it, it grew partly out of a kind of academic interest in a way looking at you know the mathematics of music i've always been fascinated by the physics and the mathematics behind sound and and it was the way to join those two things together so you know working up music in a form of equations um, that sounds like fun it was for you wasn't it stacks it? of fun yeah <laughs> believe me oh i, I believe you so thrilled when that became, you know, a, a possibility for me, you know, because I shunned computers actually uh, in the early days. I didn't use a computer for sequencing or any kind of processing recording, not until 2001, really. I just didn't want to see the computer. I didn't want the screen, you know, it's just too much like a telly and telly's too much like switching your brain off. So I just thought, I don't want, I don't want screens. I just want, you know, just, just music hardware and, and that'll do. Um, and it, so it was, it was, I suppose, you know, relatively speaking, kind of late on that the computers came into my world and become mixed up with music. But yeah, so it was, uh, just so thrilling broadly to me. You could, you could, you could sort of form a very, very, very quick summary of music as being the mathematics of the emotions. Now that for me is borne out by this process of making music in that way. You know, you, 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 you're designing equations that evolve over time and yet this produces sounds that then result in emotional effects i mean it's what could be more fascinating than that i mean honestly like that will keep me going forever saying that i mean i did start out you know very early on using some vic 20 programming stuff and so it was a nice way to get back to it um i had a vic 20 when i was a kid and so when i got my bass guitar you know the first things i recorded were, were basically vic 20 drum machine tracks and this is the computer that you used yeah for so it's just come back the hello the vic's back and yes i'm so thrilled like it sounds so great it's so tight and slamming you know it's like really i sent myself a challenge a couple of years ago so i want I, first of all i just thought oh, i was going to sample it i'm just going to fire it up and sample it because there's a square wave on there that's got a unique sound to it um, and also the white noise generator is again very very specific sounding. So I thought I'd just make a sample library of it, out of it. But then uh, just got got as soon as I fired it up, I thought actually I kind of could have a load of fun with this. And I thought well, I'm going to try to make a synth uh, that I could use in the studio, you know, on a day to day to day basis, and it would just integrate and blend and just be usable like all the other stuff is. You know, you just just trigger with MIDI, it delivers the results in a consistent way. And off you go, you use it in tracks. So that's what I ended up with. Um, it was a bit of a journey, but um, yeah, just running like a machine code um, program on the VIC-20 that reads the user port and the joystick port, um, and then using a sound card to send uh, control voltages to those uh, terminals. 
um, like a 12-bit signal across that, which is enough to kind of get your access to the amplitude control and uh, all the pitches on the uh, four voices. And then lo and behold, there you go, you've got the instrument. And it's, uh, it's not on every track on the uh, new album, but it is on a fair few. So, um, you know, that's one for the anoraks. <laughs> <laughs> Listen out for the rig. You know, it's in there, bubbling away. Nice. Uh, I wanted to sort of go to this year where you kind of shut down your studio and just focused on, on playing bass. Yeah. Uh-huh. What happened there? So we're, we're, we're referring to like 2007 there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I just finished up Hello Everything. Um, there was a couple of shows, but there wasn't much really associated with that, gigs here and there. But by this point, I mean, I'd be, you know, slogging away in various forms, you know, Different, different recording approaches. I mean, Hello Everything was formed out of a quite a, a very eclectic phase with no real overarching concept or idea, you know, which is why it's kind of a mess, you know, it's just like a big compilation, really, you know. But still. Is that why it's called Hello Everything? I guess it is. Makes sense, doesn't it? If, now you say it, yeah. I don't know if <laughs> it's that's everything. It's everything, just who cares? You know, bring it all in. Very kind of uh, eclectic outlook. But, um, yeah, it was just a, basically like a diary, like, you know, like, look, here's what I've been up to, you know. I've got the big sort of conceptual statement, but I've got this stuff. Check it out. And then all those, the cover uh, pictures, is that all you yeah. as well? Kind yeah, of? yeah. It was just to sort of try to give a very simplistic sort of reference to like, you know, here's the stuff. Here's the stuff I do. <laughs> you know, I, I felt quite like a very, very sort of literal sort of uh, rendering of it. But there you go. But so the, the, the after that, I... I thought it's time to turn all this gear off it's been switched on for the last whatever 12 years it needs a break so do i so and it wasn't long before that that i got the six string bass i think i got the six string in 2004 or something um no three and uh whilst i got quite comfortable with it by that point i used it on ultra vista for example um it felt like time to just go into it and and absolutely see how the thing worked so I, I started working up pieces just for solo uh which which in the end formed the pieces for solo electric bass record or well, i think it's because solo electric bass yeah it's, it's called solo electric bass one is that because oh, you're going to do another one it felt felt like it at the time I mean, <laughs> you know i don't know if the public uh really kind of you know particularly kind of agree with me and in that there should be a number two i don't know <laughs> I think it's beautiful. Oh, thanks. That's really sweet of you. I mean, actually, yeah. I mean, a couple of people have have. I I, I think it's one of those records that you know, uh, you know, there's no no two ways about it. It's a bit niche, but that on the other hand, you know, uh, there's some sort of really movingly heartfelt comments that I've had from people about the record, and and that's enough. You know, if four or five people, it really is something special for them. That's that's more than justified in terms of putting in the public domain. So there, yeah, there could be another one, you know. Maybe that's next, you know. I don't really, I haven't really been playing bass, you know, because of the arm. I, I got, I started um, playing guitar more because guitar is easier, frankly. You know, smaller, the strings are lighter, there's less tension. Um, it was easier to play, so I just thought, 
I'm going to rehabilitate myself with that. And then I just got into playing it. I just thought electric guitar is actually loads of fun. But you, I mean, this is sort of your career in a nutshell, isn't it? Sort of da- jumping from one thing to the yeah. next, whatever you're feeling at the time. That's it, yeah, yeah. You've I called mean, your career a mess because you follow your heart, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it is. it's a lovely mess. Well, that's, 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 that's very kind of you. I, I, I de- it's definitely a mess. <laughs> that much I can say. But I, yeah, I don't really, in the end, have much choice. You know, I'm just driven by enthusiasm and enjoyment and, and the joy of, of experimenting, trying things out. And, and, you know, I've got to say sometimes I feel, I feel I'll get a, get a bit of a kick out of winding people up. You know, it's just like, see what this happens. See what happens when you do this. Who knows? Who cares? Let's try it out. You know, and it, I think sort of careerism is something I'm completely inept at. You know, I've blown out stacks of things that could have been huge career opportunities, but, but, all on that very same basis that's like, I don't want to do that. I'm not doing that today. And beyond today, who knows? But today's the thing I'm in command of. Um, who knows about tomorrow? You know, I, I, I can't plan for that. I've got no real kind of idea of, you know, in any case, if I did try and plan, whether it would actually work out well. So, you know, just go with what's in front of me and just uh, make the best of that. So you're, in a, you're very much a in-the-moment kind of person, but does that mean, do you ever really look back, reflect on what you've done? Or? Not really, no. I'm more or less anti-retro. I really don't like that tendency. It feels dangerous. I can't help but see it as part of the, uh, the way things are developing politically. You know, there's this sort of bunker mentality in the culture that's like, we need to look back because looking forward is too frightening. It feels like all of a piece with climate change and things we are faced with. So, um, on the other hand, I think there's no other way through. We have to face forward. Absolutely no choice. Looking back's not really going to help. But it's funny because once I set up a rule, I've got to break it. Right. And so the, the anti-retro thing is more or less a rule. But I just, I know that actually when I started out making this record, it was, I was just trying to comfort myself. I was like, oh, I just want the 303. I just want the 101, I just want the, you know, the 909, and I want all this stuff that's just, like, fun and reminds me of, of amazing spirit of adventure, you know, when I first came across it all. And actually, you know, I want to mention that the record is dedicated to my friend Chris Marshall, who died uh, actually shortly after this escapade with my arms. So it was like a one thing happened and then another, and it was just an enormous blow. Um, and... Partly, I, I wanted to return to the days where him and I were just messing about with that stuff. We, he was a very technically minded guy. And um, together we learned about how samplers worked and, and how drum machines work and how you know, synthesis was actually happening inside the synths. You know, it was really, you know, both really into the electronics as well. And we made pieces of music together and just had a, you know, great, great, great time. You know, it was just part of that posse with Hardy as well. You know, we just used to put on the parties and have a great time. But it was there was this technical slant always. always. It's like, how is how is that happening? How does that work? So, um, so yeah. In a way, it's I guess perhaps there's some sort of well, that that was what happened. I mean, I, I've just wanted to go back. Yeah. And uh, look, I mean, I wouldn't stick out a record that was retro because I just don't want to waste the public's time. I think it is actually a waste of time doing that. You know, I'm not trying to recreate 
some moment from 1994 or whatever. You know, if it felt, you know, I'll quite happily make a like a, an acid track that you wouldn't be able to probably tell from something from 88 in Chicago, but I wouldn't stick it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't stick it in the public domain. I think it's pointless. So um, here we are, you know, old instruments, but hopefully new sounds. I mean, I've, I've tried, I really like, really, really trying to get new sounds out of these things. And what's so amazing is that it's possible still, you know. That all this old overused kit is still still got some spark, you know.